The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? Uh, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. Last week, we concluded a series of episodes on Marilyn Monroe, the female star who, more than any other, defined the decade of the 1950s. Jane Mansfield was one of a series of stars signed by various studios in an effort to compete with the money-minting and ultimately culture-changing supernova that was Marilyn Monroe. These so-called Marilyn copycats had varying success on their own merits. Kim Novak became a legend. Mamie Van Doren and Jane Mansfield became part of a punchline in Pulp Fiction. Don't you just love it when you come back from the bathroom to find your food waiting for you? We're lucky we got anything at all. I don't think Buddy Holly's much of a waiter. Maybe we should have sat in Marilyn Monroe section. Would you like some coffee? Which one? There's two Monroes. No, there's not. That is Marilyn Monroe. That is Mamie Van Doren. And I don't see Jenny Mansfield. So she must have a night off or something. Pretty smart. Yeah, I got my moments. But Mansfield's experience was unique. 
because from the beginning of her stardom, she wasn't so much a substitute for Marilyn Monroe as a parody of her. Mansfield was college-educated. She spoke multiple languages. She wasn't an innocent who was preyed upon by a vampire industry. She was a natural brunette and naturally extremely curvaceous, and she had shaped herself into a blonde bombshell before heading to Hollywood because she sensed an opportunity. She offered herself up to the industry, believing she was smart enough to play the dumb blonde and still maintain control. And she might have been able to hold on to that control in another era, maybe even just 10 or 15 years later. But Mansfield was both a product of the 1950s and a victim of timing. She was the last in a long line of blondes hired by Fox, a studio that, by the early 1960s, as we discussed in our last episode on Monroe, was in transition and in trouble. To some extent or another, all the studios were, and none of them would be in the business of signing and molding contract stars for much longer. Jane was one of the last to get in under the wire. And though she wasn't responsible for the collapse of the studio system, her larger-than-life, walking cartoon version of the blonde bombshell may have accelerated the end of that type, at least at that stage of Hollywood's evolution. Join us, won't you, for the story of Jane Mansfield. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Born Vera Jane Palmer in 1933, the future Jane Mansfield was an excellent student at her Dallas high school when she found herself pregnant at age 17. She married her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Paul Mansfield, and then completed her high school degree. After giving birth to a daughter named Jane Marie, Jane Sr. attended college, studying drama but also chemistry and biology, and posing nude for art classes. When Marilyn Monroe began making a splash around 1953, Jane became inspired to follow suit. Her husband had just been discharged from the army with the end of the Korean War, and he agreed to move the family out to Los Angeles and give Jane's bid for stardom six months. She was screen tested by Paramount, who declined to offer her a contract. Then she went calling at Republic Pictures, the B-grade studio that had helped launch the careers of Carol Landis and John Wayne. There, Jane was shocked to find that she wasn't the prettiest girl in the casting office. Jane had never not been the prettiest girl in a room before. Then she met Jim Byron, a publicist who agreed to take her on. Byron masterminded two gimmicks that helped Jane get her face in the newspapers. 
First, he found her a skimpy Santa Claus costume and had Jane pay a pre-Christmas visit, in costume, to every newspaper in Los Angeles. Then, in January 1955, RKO Pictures threw a junket for the 3D Jane Russell movie Underwater in Silver Springs, Florida. According to reporter Lloyd Shearer, in order to win over a mostly male press corps, RKO chief Howard Hughes had populated the junket with dozens of attractive females, including legitimate actresses like Debbie Reynolds, less established starlets under control to RKO, and what Shearer euphemistically referred to as, quote, several commercially-minded girls who were majoring in business administration. They conducted night school in their own apartments. A quote-unquote top-heavy blonde sat down next to Shearer and introduced herself as Jane Mansfield, already giving off the vibe of a proud careerist with no bashfulness regarding her figure or her ambition. Mansfield told Shearer that she was sitting next to him because she had asked one of the publicity men which man could do the most good for her future. Shearer demurred and told her she'd been had. He was just a writer. But surely there was something he could do for her. She said, I've just got to become a screen star. Shearer observed her, quote, jiggling her unbrazeared bust. You're obviously talented, he told her, but can you act? To which Jane Mansfield shot back, can Jane Russell act? As it turned out, Jane Russell, the star of the movie that occasioned the junket, was delayed in New York and would show up a full day late. Mansfield saw an opening and took it. According to Shearer, she cleverly used that one day to steal the spotlight by posing in a tiny bikini for every photographer she could find. Mansfield struck Shearer as, quote, self-exploitative, bizarre, intelligent, and determined. Soon after the junket, Jane posed for Playboy for the first time. And after the photos appeared in the February 1955 edition of the magazine, Jane Mansfield was signed to a contract at Warner Brothers. The publicity stunts had worked in that Jane had used the attention drawn by her body to land the career opportunity she wanted. But her husband had had enough. I began to not like what I saw, and I told her that, Paul Mansfield later remembered. I just couldn't stand the attention she was receiving from other men. I could see myself as a Mr. Jane Mansfield, and that really wasn't what I had sought for my life. A few months later, Paul Mansfield would leave his wife and young child. Hollywood broke up our marriage, Jane would later say, adding that the specific culprit was, quote, my desire for stardom. I was a real bitch after we came to Hollywood. Warner Brothers never did much with Jane Mansfield, which in retrospect, wasn't much of a surprise. Of all of the studios, WB had the least amount of expertise with blonde bombshells. The studio dropped her after a few months. 
Finally, she was offered a part on Broadway in a new show written by George Axelrod, the playwright behind the recent play-turned-smash Marilyn Monroe film, The Seven-Year Itch. Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter was a modern Hollywood satire dealing with an actress named Rita Marlowe, who was transparently modeled on Monroe. When the show opened in October 1955, Jane became an instant Broadway star. She ensured her ubiquity in Manhattan by offering shop owners an autographed 5x3 blow-up print of her body with an exclusive pose for each store. About halfway through the smash hit play's year-long run, Jane spent an off night at another show. In 1956, 63-year-old Mae West, the groundbreaking writer and comic actress behind 1930s hit movies like I'm No Angel and She Done Him Wrong, hadn't starred in a film in 13 years. But she had continued pushing boundaries on the stage. Jane went to see Mae's show at New York's Latin Quarter nightclub, in which May performed in front of what she called a wall of men, scantily clad bodybuilders, every one. One member of the wall was a Hungarian former Mr. Universe named Mickey Hargitay. After the show, Jane went backstage and was introduced to Mickey. He was as exaggerated a character of masculinity as Jane was of femininity. They fell in something like love at first sight. Will success spoil Rock Hunter caused 20th Century Fox to take an interest in Jane. She was so good at mocking Marilyn Monroe that the studio got the idea that she might be a suitable replacement for her. Or, at the very least, hiring a girl who would become famous for her derisive impression of Marilyn might humiliate the real Marilyn into being more compliant. While Marilyn was in England making the second of two films that she would produce, The Prince and the Showgirl, Fox signed Jane Mansfield to a contract and bought the rights to turn Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter into a movie. When her play ended in September 1956, Jane headed back to Hollywood. Rock Hunter was going to be adapted for the screen by writer-director Frank Tashlin. But first, Fox decided to soft-launch their new blonde by casting her in another Tashlin film, The Girl Can't Help It. Tashlin had been a cartoonist turned producer of Porky Pig and Bugs Bunny shorts, turned Marx Brothers gag writer, turned director of live-action comedy features starring Bob Hope and Martin and Lewis. His two Jane Mansfield movies established Mansfield's screen persona fully perhaps too fully. She'd never find equivalent vehicles for her unique talents again. The Girl Can't Help It was a satire of celebrity, featuring Jane as the girlfriend of a gangster who is determined to turn her into a singing star. To that end, he hires a publicist, played by Tom Ewell of The Seven Year Itch, to promote her. It also featured on-screen performances by Fats Domino, Little Richard, and other emerging rock stars, making it one of the first real rock and roll movies. Elvis Presley had only made his film debut a couple of months before. Will's success spoil Rock Hunter was a postmodern satire, one of Hollywood's first, but it was still a Hollywood movie of the 1950s 
which meant it also still had to be propaganda for Hollywood movies, for what the big screen experience could offer that television couldn't. And so the play, which satirized the movie industry, was adapted so that the movie, while poking plenty of fun at Mansfield's movie career, would otherwise spare Hollywood to focus on the advertising industry and television. Both The Girl Can't Help It and Rock Hunter were shot on CinemaScope, and both included gags mocking the inferiority of television in comparison to a beautiful wide screen. Both films anticipate a certain 1960s sensibility, even as they remain fundamentally 50s at their core. They are sweet, rather than vicious, in their mode of critique, in a way that makes something like The Apartment, which dealt with similar material as Rock Hunter three years later, feel like a lecture in comparison. Before working with Tashlin, Jane Mansfield was famous enough to have her photo in nationwide newspapers and magazines, but only a tiny percentage of people who saw those photos, only those who had seen her tiny parts in a few Warner Brothers movies and those who had been in New York to see her single Broadway show, had actually seen her act. Guided by Tashlin's cartoon sensibility, Jane became something like a real-life Jessica Rabbit, if Jessica Rabbit usually had a smile on her face. There's a sequence in The Girl Can't Help It, about 15 minutes into the movie, in which she walks down the street, almost in slow motion, as Little Richard's version of the title song plays on the soundtrack. She passes an ice delivery man, who finds that his product turns to water in his hands as she passes. She smiles at a milkman, and once he gets a look at her from behind, the top pops off his bottle, and white fluid starts spurting down his hand. This scene is a joke about Jane's body, but more than that, it's a joke about the era's attitude towards such women. The milkman gag is just literalizing what the media was telling men they were supposed to feel every day looking at leg art in the newspaper. In Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, Mansfield performs a spoof on Marilyn. She's going to New York to be in seclusion and start her own production company. Her next film is a drama about two Russian brothers, which is a clear joke about Marilyn's stated desire to star in a Brothers Karamazov movie. But the film also draws on Jane's own career as a target for mockery. There are multiple, not necessarily flattering references, to The Girl Can't Help It and a film that she made later, Kiss Them For Me. Here, Jane's excessive femininity is both a joke in itself and used as a tool to make fun of a modern man sent into a tailspin by the culture's tug of war between repression and teasing titillation. Jane swivels her hips, squeals happily to punctuate sentences, poses with her head thrown back into the side a bit, sort of like she's trying to look at her own butt. Listen to this scene, where she's talking to her maid, played by Joan Blondell. The vocal similarity to Marilyn Monroe is stunning. Boy, I know it all started out to be a stunt to burn bobble, but Rocky kissed me and then... Something happened. Honest, it was just like electricity. Mm, I know, that wonderful ACDC feeling, but that is not love. Oh, it's close enough. Tony Randall plays Rock, 
the emasculated man who wears an apron to cook breakfast for the niece he's inexplicably single-parenting, and frets about his image to his secretary-slash-girlfriend. There's a scene in which he calls Jane the titular head of her own production company, and she throws herself on him. He barely lets her. You're hurting me, he cries. But he's so overwhelmed by her heat that a bag of what seemed to be already popped popcorn explodes in his pocket. But Rock Hunter doesn't suggest that the cartoon of sexuality is a suitable romantic partner. There's a scene in which Rock's also blonde, also banging girlfriend, pretends to have been thrown into a wave of insecurity by the mere presence of Rita Marlowe, just in order to screw with Rock. The implication is that smart women know better than to let the culture's panic over bombshell blondes affect the way they feel about themselves. Because bombshell blondes are so patently ridiculous. In Tashlin's movies, Jane's bombshell is a walking punchline and a catalyst for mocking men for falling for her. In that sense, the peak Mansfield persona is rather unlike Marilyn Monroe, who even in her sex comedies never suggested men should think critically about their powerlessness in the face of her body. In this way, Mansfield was more like Jean Harlow. In fact, strictly in terms of the persona they both put forth on screen in comedies, Jane Mansfield, as directed by Frank Tashlin, was perhaps more like Jean Harlow than Marilyn Monroe ever managed to be. This is still early in Jane's career, but she and these movies are so good at puncturing the bombshell bubble that you can't imagine two things happening after this. That anyone would want a sincere blonde bombshell, and that anyone would want Jane Mansfield to do anything else. At this crucial moment in her movie career, another starlet might have tried harder to conform to the image being sketched for her by the studio. Jane Mansfield seemed determined to complicate that image. It wouldn't be quite accurate to say that she wanted to present herself as she really was, because she was still actively ginning up publicity stunts, and she was absolutely game about inventing excuses for the press to pay attention to her. She loved being a star and loved playing the part in her off time so much that at one point she threw shade at an unnamed actress, possibly Marilyn Monroe, for buying into, quote, this new fad of blue jeans and sweaters. I wouldn't allow myself to be seen on the streets with my hair up and no makeup, as one blonde actress did in Beverly Hills. Most shockingly, in some interviews, she hinted at an awareness of sexuality as a construction. She'd claim she was totally unaware of her sex appeal, and then, in virtually the next breath, say things like, Men want women to be pink, helpless, and do lots of breathing. At the same time, Jane refused to play just a dumb blonde or just a wanton sex pot. After filming Rock Hunter, she went on the Ed Sullivan Show, where she played lead violin in front of a group of four male instrumentalists. This was perceived as something between a miracle and a freak show. 
one of the male violinists backing her up, was quoted as saying, The violin is very tough, and any girl with a big bust who can play that well is amazing. She also defied the studio when it came to her personal life. Jane was still seeing Mickey Hargitay, and she wanted to marry him. But Fox forbid it. It was bad enough that their new sex star had a child, which she refused to pawn off or hide. They wanted to promote the illusion that Jane Mansfield was a swinging bachelorette, as though the sexual fantasy she was selling wouldn't work if men knew she wasn't really available to them. So they made her go on fake dates with male contract stars, so that the gossip columns and photo spreads would be full of the idea of Jane as a girl about town. Meanwhile, she was sneaking off to see Mickey Hargitay whenever she could, although she couldn't see him at all when Fox wouldn't let him accompany her to the San Francisco location shoot of Kiss Them For Me, a Stanley Donnan comedy in which Jane was second billed behind 53-year-old Cary Grant. Mickey stayed home in Beverly Hills and built Jane a heart-shaped swimming pool. Nor was Mickey allowed to accompany her on a European tour meant to promote Rock Hunter, which had the effect of turning Jane into an object of tabloid fascination nearly worldwide. By the time she returned, probably riding an ego high from the adoration of the European media, Jane was confident enough in her stardom to defy her studio. She announced at a press conference that she would marry Mickey Hargitay, whether anyone else liked it or not. The marriage took place on January 13, 1958. A month later, Jane began headlining a nightly show at the Tropicana in Las Vegas. This was not something she had been reduced to because Fox wouldn't give her a movie, although the studio did advise against it. But the nightclub act was something Jane herself really wanted to do. Her vision of her own celebrity was, without question, ahead of its time. She approached the media much more like a modern reality star than a 1950s movie star. But, unfortunately for Jane, it was the 1950s. And everything she was doing to feed her celebrity, from marrying Mickey and quickly becoming pregnant, to returning to the Vegas stage just a few months after giving birth thanks to the magic of diet pills, was distracting her from making movies. Kiss Them For Me had bombed, so she hadn't been in a hit film since Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter in 1957. And now it was 1959, and the most notable thing Jane Mansfield was doing in Hollywood was getting photographed at a gala in honor of Sophia Loren, with her breasts spilling so far out of her dress that her right nipple was captured for posterity. Italian actress Loren appears in this famous photo sitting next to Mansfield, her eyes locked on the slipping nipple with what appears to be disapproval-slash-horror on her face. And then, suddenly, it was the 60s. (laughs) 
Jane had appeared in a Raoul Walsh western and had filmed two movies in Italy, including a ludicrous Hercules movie in which she starred opposite her muscle man husband. But she was still waiting for another Hollywood hit. In the summer of 1962, Jane was dropped by Fox. She figured she'd land on her feet, but soon thereafter, Marilyn Monroe died. Just over a year later, JFK was assassinated. And right after that, the Beatles happened. Jane should have been better equipped to deal with the coming youth quake than a lot of 1950s contract stars. After all, The Girl Can't Help It had been one of the first rock and roll movies, and it had had an impact on John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who started playing music together shortly after the movie came to Liverpool. But that was way back in 1957, and Jane hadn't done much movie-wise of note since. Her whole persona had been a response to a cultural moment that had ended. When the Beatles came to Los Angeles for the first time in 1964, Paul told reporters at a press conference that he wanted to meet Mansfield, which may have been a joke. Much of what came out of the Beatles' mouths wasn't to be taken literally. But this message got to Jane, and a meeting did happen. Chris Hutchins, a journalist who was following the Beatles around, claimed that Jane showed up at the house the band was renting unannounced and that while John Lennon initially had thoughts of seducing her, he was turned off when Jane tugged on his mop of hair and asked, Is this real? John pointed to Jane's chest and asked the same question. Then, according to Hutchins, when Jane asked for a cocktail, John offered to mix it. And behind the bar where she couldn't see him, he peed in it. Jane drank the drink and then followed the band to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, where many reports contend the repartee about the realness of John's hair and Jane's boobs actually occurred, and where most reports contend that all parties involved got embarrassingly drunk. A few months later, the band did an interview with Playboy magazine. George offhandedly mentioned Jane, and Paul responded hostily. Actually, she's a clot, Paul said. Then he admitted, actually, I haven't even met her. But you won't print that anyway, of course, because Playboy is very pro-Mansfield. They think she's a rave, but she really is an old bag. The pictures available from that night at the Whiskey clearly show all three other Beatles and not Paul. So maybe he wasn't there and maybe he really never met her. So why was he so unkind to her? In 1964, Jane was 31, which was older than it would seem now. And she was by no means a square. There are stories of her experimenting with LSD that predate the stories of the Beatles doing the same thing. But maybe Paul was just putting words to the feeling that was in the air, that the old icons, the sexy ones included, were due to be junked. And the new generation was only interested in the new. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Jane's last significant film role was in Promises, Promises, directed by and starring actor Tommy Noonan. This movie included nude scenes, Jane's first, which were photographed for Playboy, a repeat of the aborted effort to cross-promote Marilyn's nudity in Something's Got to Give. This enraged Mickey Hargitay, who reportedly punched Noonan out for filming his wife's nudity, but maybe also because Noonan had an affair during filming with Jane. Mansfield's nudity also caught the attention of the Chicago censors, who had Hugh Hefner arrested for obscenity over the pictorial. In the magazine, Hefner argued that the Mansfield pictures were not more obscene than any that Playboy had published previously. He believed he was really being targeted by the censors for a manifesto called the Playboy Philosophy, which had appeared over the course of several issues, including Jane's, and in which Hefner criticized the local government in Chicago and its censors for having no separation of church and state. There was a trial, and the jury deadlocked. In early 1964, Jane gave birth to her fourth child and her third with Mickey, future Law and Order SVU star Mariska Hargitay. Soon thereafter, with Hollywood uninterested in her, Jane began rehearsing a theatrical production of Bus Stop to be mounted in Yonkers, New York. Jane was once again taking a page from the playbook of The Master. This had been the first film Marilyn Monroe had produced for herself to star in, as her own declaration of independence from Fox. Though Mickey was also cast in the show, Jane fell in love with her director, Matt Simber. This time it was not love at first sight. I was really turned off when I met him the first day, Jane later said. By the second day, he had turned me on. Simber would later make a name for himself as a pornographer, shepherding into release 70s films with titles like The Sensuous Woman and Black African Sexual Power, as well as a sexploitation horror film called Delirium, starring Mickey Hargitay, and a number of blaxploitation movies today considered to be classics. Deep in the throes of lust, Jane decided to believe that Matt Simber was the high arts Vengali she had been waiting for. She compared their partnership to Sophia Lorenz with Carlo Ponti, and predicted that Simber would make films on the level of Italian masters like Fellini and De Sica. Instead, together they mounted another production to put Jane through the paces of the now-deceased blonde megastar. This time it was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 
Jane left Mickey and married Simber, with whom she had a fifth child. Jane and Simber produced a few successful nightclub shows together, but their relationship was volatile. Forced to co-parent Jane's kids together, he and Mickey got into a number of physical fights, with Simber breaking his own arm once when his punch connected with Hargitay's hard bod. By 1966, Matt Simber was gone. Jane then became involved with her divorce lawyer, Sam Brody. Jane had begun drinking more heavily during her last marriage, and she often showed up to work or in public with bruises, which she blamed on her husband. But others close to her believe she may have been beating herself up to get attention. But when she hooked up with Sam Brody, there was no question. He really beat her. Both of them were prone to drinking too much, and he was highly controlling. He claimed that his violence was part of Jane's attraction to him, saying, I beat her up. She didn't mind. She loves it. I am so sick of beating her, but she drives me into rages. And then I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know myself anymore. Jane is the most masochistic person I've ever known. Jane was changing as the times changed, although, as the Beatles incident perhaps shows, she was moving in the opposite direction of the times. In the 1950s, she had invented herself as the more brazen, patently ridiculous second coming of Marilyn Monroe. She had lustfully sought out Mickey Hargitay to be her partner in the crime of spoofing the nation's simultaneous prurient fascination with and moralistic shaming of the human body. When her very 1950s act stopped selling in the 1960s, Jane started ceding control of her career and her life to men like Matt Simber and Sam Brody. She transformed from the dominant, confident young woman that Lloyd Shearer had met at the Underworld Junket, the woman telling a man what she was going to be, into a woman who needed a man to tell her what she could be. Things started to get weird, maybe not least because Jane and Sam were apparently dropping acid pretty frequently. In October 1966, Jane cheerfully participated in a publicity stunt in which she was named High Priestess of San Francisco's Church of Satan by its leader, Anton LaVey. Brody, who was an Orthodox Jew who was trying to get Jane to convert to his tradition, was a jerk to LaVey, and the High Priest of Satanism told Jane to stay away from Sam. He had put a spell on her boyfriend that would ensure he was dead within a year. A month later, Jane, Sam, and the kids were at a publicity stunt at a zoo when a lion cub attacked six-year-old Zoltan Hargitay. Zoltan suffered terrible injuries. His spleen had to be removed. But he survived. Jane's relationship with Sam started to negatively impact her work. Jane lost a club tour gig when the promoter accused her of breach of contract for showing up to work with too many bruises. According to the promoter's breach of contract suit, quote, disfiguring black and blue marks from her knees up 
make it impossible to wear miniskirts called for in performances. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Soon after that, Jane's oldest daughter, Jane Marie, accused Sam Brody of beating her, and in the midst of an LAPD investigation, custody of the 16-year-old was taken away from Jane. Two weeks later, Jane, Sam, and the three Hargitay children, Miklos, Zoltan, and Mariska, were all in Biloxi, Mississippi, where Jane was performing in a nightclub. Because she was booked on a morning show in New Orleans the next morning, The five of them, plus a 19-year-old driver, got in a car to drive from Biloxi to New Orleans after Jane's show. The kids slept in the back seat while the adults sat up front. The highway had been recently fogged for mosquitoes. Around 2 a.m., the tractor trailer driving in front of Mansfield's car slowed down in the fog. Jane's driver didn't see the truck at all. They crashed into it at high speed, and all three adults sitting up front were thrown out of the car. Jane, Sam, and the driver died, probably instantly. The kids were all right. Today, Jane Mansfield's movies have largely been forgotten, and when she's remembered at all, it's for her gruesome death. Rumors circulate to this day that in the car crash, she was decapitated. She wasn't, but a portion of her skull was sliced off by the impact of the crash, and she was apparently wearing a wig, which was also thrown off. Thirty years later, the undertaker who worked on Jane's body spoke out about preparing her body for the funeral. She had a lot of makeup with her, he remembered. And I used it all. Next week, we're going to revisit a blonde we've talked about in the past with new details to better understand how the most promising star of 1950 ended up dead at the age of 39. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at Remember This Pod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. At our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you'll find more information about this episode and other episodes. Plus, on our Film Club page, there is a guide to all of the films that we've talked about on this show, or at least all of the ones that we've deemed worthy of mention. We'll be back next week 
with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there's a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.